0: Kura, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. At 99 years of age, theologian Lloyd Gearing has lived a full and engaged life, which has shaped beliefs that range across life after death, the fallibility of the Bible, the divinity of Jesus, the evils of fundamentalism, and the ethical requirement to care for the planet. From his early days in Rangiora to a ministry in the Presbyterian Church, a controversial heresy trial and a distinguished teaching career, Gearing is supremely situated to assess our spiritual and temporal progress over the last century. We celebrate the life journey of this profound thinker and his new book, Portholes to the Past, in a conversation with John Campbell. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Good morning everyone on this uh, wintry old Auckland day. Welcome to you all and thank you for coming. It's lovely to have you all here and it's lovely to be here. I'm John Campbell, much more importantly, this is Sir Lloyd Geering. When Anne O'Brien asked me if I'd like to introduce and interview or have a conversation with Lloyd Geering, I said yes, immediately, excitedly, with great anticipation, precisely because I have so much to ask him and so much to learn and because there is very much about this extraordinary man to admire. I grew up in a home of tepid Anglicanism. I went to Sunday school where we colored in pictures of biblical scenes and drank tang from a jug. I was later an altar boy at St. Barnabas Church in Roseneath High Anglican with incense and robes and Father Des Britton. I was able to do a 360 with the thurible without losing the incense or the lid But this was the 70s, and it all came to a sudden end with the development of regular potluck dinners to be held each month at the homes of the congregation, every family having a turn. My dad regarded the prospect of eating or hosting a potluck dinner with such intense horror that that was that. (laughs) Seldom in the history of the entire world has there been a less virtuous retreat from any church than the Campbells quietly slinking away in order to avoid communal meatloaf. <laughs> and since then, what? Well, for me, niceties tiptoeing about as one tends to do when one is uncertain of beliefs and boundaries and doesn't want to cause offense, a kind of timidity. Lloyd Goering, on the other hand, has questioned beliefs and redrawn, re-drawn boundaries. He has thought about religion bravely, rigorously, intelligently, unflinchingly, imaginatively, audaciously, and profoundly. How many of us do that? As a journalist, I subscribe to the hopeful idea that our job is to speak truth to power. Lloyd Gehring does too, obviously, but the power he spoke truth to was church and God. Having arrived at Faith himself, and we'll talk about what he was looking for and what he thought he'd found, he did not rest there or slip quietly out the door when the meatloaf arrived. He looked it in the eyes and asked it what it was. He read and he read David Strauss, Pierre Théard de Chardin. Uh, Feuerbach, who showed how the very notion of God has resulted from the psychological projection of our supreme human values onto the backdrop of an imagined heaven. John Robinson, honest to God, our image of God has to go. Heresy, some charged, as we all know, and it wasn't. And today, here we are with him, May 2017, the Christian era now drifting behind us, as he says at the end of portholes to the past a global era upon us. But, and this is from the superb closing of Portholes to the Past, which will be available after the session signed by the author, since the modern secular world is largely a product of the Christian West, it may not be too much to hope that from the fragments of dismantled Christendom, we may rediscover and reinvigorate the moral values of justice, truth, and environmental guardianship. Ladies and gentlemen, what a privilege it is to be here this morning with this man, Lloyd Gehring. We've been been chatting out the back in the green room, and um, it it makes me happy to be with you. Thank you. and you smile, <laughs> but it hasn't always been easy, your life, and I'm not talking about 1967, in fact, I'm gonna ask you later if you actually rather enjoyed that, but, but um, growing up was tough, wasn't it? Your siblings were what, 14, 12, and 11 when you were born? Yes. You were effectively an only That's child. That's right, yes. Quite lonely, your parents moved about, they were, they were.
2: Well, we moved about a lot in those first 20 years. Somehow or other, never stayed more than four years, and sometimes only about three months in the house. I, I don't know how many houses I was lived in. Mm.
1: I was talking to my children about you. My children are 13 and 16, classic 21st century children. And I was explaining about heresy and theology and all that, and they, I could tell they were being polite and moderately attentive. But I really got them when I, I told them about Cozy Dell, where you, li- <laughs> where you lived as a child. No electricity, no running water, Uh, The only heating you had was from the eucalyptus, which is not great firewood. You did your homework by the light of the kerosene lantern. It seems extraordinary that this is part of the life of a person who is still here.
2: Yes. uh, (laughs) A very different life it was. Uh, Mind you, I enjoyed it in many ways. It was a home and of course, because I I was a train boy at school, it meant that I, didn't, apart from school, I didn't have many friends, except those at school. So over the weekend, I was always on my own. After all, it was only a small farm, about uh, six cows and uh, about 20 sheep and half a dozen pigs and 100 hens. One of my jobs was to clean out the fell house every week, week, weekend, not a job I liked much. I liked all the other things, I only occasionally had to milk the cows, and it was my job there to get up in the morning about uh, six o'clock uh, and put on the, put on the range um, and, and make the breakfast while my parents were milking the cows so that everything was ready for them when I set off at a quarter to eight, to go and catch the train. So it was a, it, I got home about five o'clock, often brought the cows in, that sort of thing. It was a It was a lonely life, but uh, I found it a very enjoyable life. Mind you, I was also a hockey player, so I went in at the weekends and played hockey on the Saturday afternoon, and uh, I, I greatly enjoyed that. Yes, Cozy Dell was quite a life.
1: <laughs> you were brilliant at school, there's a photo, in Port to the past of you with all the prizes you won at school, and uh, you you can barely be seen above them.
2: (laughs) Well, yes, I was, I suppose I was fairly bright compared with the the others. (laughs) If
1: if um, any of them are here today, obviously.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I I collected a lot of prizes. And though though the prize that I treasured most was the prize for being the best all-round boy of the school.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in this book, um, I, I won't cite it now, but this, this is lovely. And also, if you haven't, and I suspect almost everyone in the room will have read Wrestling With God. Boy, this is a great read. It told, it told me so many things I didn't already know that I'm profoundly grateful. Uh, but in the book, there is the last photo of your entire family together. So there's Fred, Ira, you, your parents, George and Alice and Ray. The last photo of your family together. It's in 1926. Yes. 91 years ago. And I'm, I'm staggered by that.
2: Yes, I was only eight years age at that stage and we never met together again. Some, it, it wasn't that there was any dissension in the family. We all got on well with one another, but always at a distance. Of course, in those days, distance really counted much more than it does today. I mean, uh, even telephone calls were rather expensive, uh, (laughs) and so it was mainly by letter writing we all kept in touch with each other. And uh, during the war, there was much more of a break, partly because I was a conscientious objector well, two of my, my, one of my brothers died the day the war began, and the other two went to war, and uh, i never saw them for quite a few years. And indeed, um, when they came back, uh, my brother, younger brother of the two, worked on the railways, and uh, when he came back, he was actually wounded and brought back a bit earlier. He was on the railways and I didn't meet him until I was on a train one day and he came through to collect my ticket. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was a rather strange re-meeting
1: after all that time. <laughs> and, and, you, and you say in the book, slightly embarrassing. Me, pardon? You say in the book, slightly embarrassing. Yeah, embarrassing, yeah, yeah. yes. Like, oh, hello. <laughs> it, well, it was, really. <laughs> but you, there's, uh, Ira died in 1939. Age 33, on the night Neville Chamberlain declared war. Yes. And, and you had to go and tell Fred that Ira had died, right? Well,
2: what happened was that we lived out, my parents lived out at Ellington, about 15 miles out of the town. And we had no telephone those days. And uh, so they sent a special messenger out to tell us that Ira had died. So I had to go and, and, and get a bus and go in and, and uh, tell my Brother Fred, and while I was on the way, the news came that we were at war. That uh, that was quite a moment, really.
1: Mm. What an extraordinary 24 hours for you! Yes, Ira used to take you on the back of his motorbike to Sunday school.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When I was a boy of about five, we we lived on a farm away down in Southland, and uh, he had a girlfriend on another farm, so. He used to take me on the back of my of his motorbike to Sunday school, which met in the school. I mean, it was the same children as <laughs> went to school, but they're now a Sunday school, because <laughs> after all, in Southland, mostly people were Presbyterians, you see.
1: Mm. Did it mean anything to you? Beepa? Did Sunday school mean anything to you?
2: Well, it was, it was yes, it did, really, I suppose. And, and I suppose, in a way, it had a bigger influence on me than I realized at the time. Of course, most children went to Sunday school in those days. It wasn't wasn't unusual. And uh, when I was in Australia still going to Sunday school, uh, one of the things that um, kept me going there, they had the best children's library in the city, and so I used to go there and change my book, you see, every, every Sunday. And it was a part of, I never went to church, because in those days Sunday school was at three, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, so we never went into church. So, and when I came back from Australia in 19, uh, hmm, beginning in 1931, I never went to Sunday school again, and never went to church, had no connection with the church for, until my second year in university.
1: There's a lovely phrase, you say, a cluster of circumstances yes. introduce you to church when you're at university. Oh, yeah, Fr- well, Friends, it, really. It was a
2: curious set of circumstances, and none of which is really very important. Um, first of all, I was boarding in a Roman Catholic home. Now, the reason for that was I had a, f- a Roman Catholic friend who, uh, with whom I traveled into school with, you see, and so at the end of the year, he said, why don't you come and uh, board with me and share a room with me, so I did that. It was a very devout Catholic home. Uh, The the landlady's son uh, was a priest. Her daughter had entered the Carmelite uh, converted Christ Church. Um, The the Catholic bishop's uh, chauffeur was another boarder, and a, a woman about two or three years older than me, with whom I became very friendly. In fact, almost fell in love with her. Um, she entered the convent at the end of the year. Well, that was her way of going. nothing out of it. And so that, and then at the end of that year, my friend from high school days.
1: Alice Dick. Alice
2: Dick, who became a surgeon. Um, he invited me to an evening's meal on a Sunday evening, and at the end of the meal he said, oh, he said, we we go to church uh, now, would you like to join us? And so that was when I first went to church for several years, um, At first church. And when when I um, came back to my second year at university, for some reason or other, I'm not quite sure what it was I went back to that church. Well, I, you see, I heard a sermon, and I thought, my word, I might be able to learn something from that fellow. I never did, really, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, he, he was a, a great Scottish preacher, and Alan uh, Steveley was his name. Uh, and so <clears throat> I went, and, and, and for some reason or other, I now can't explain. Within about four or five weeks, I was going to church twice a Sunday, going to the the Bible class at at 10 o'clock, and even at the request of the minister, which I wasn't too pleased about at the time, teaching Sunday school. So I had a a very full day. Now, my friend, Ellis Dick, also, Introduced me to the student Christian movement, and it was the student Christian movement which had more influence upon me in many ways than 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 the church. And the student and during that first year, 1937, uh, it held a um, a, um, a mission to the to the university. The mission wasn't terribly successful. I mean, it, it, it had the SCM members going along to it, but I I strangely felt I was being called to the ministry. Now, I didn't want to be a minister, uh, but this call got stronger and stronger. And uh, I went away during that uh, summer and picked fruit at Cromwell at an orchard. And uh, I thought, oh, well, I'll know by the time I got back. Well, I didn't know by the time I got back. But nevertheless, I... uh, put in my application to the presbytery to be considered as a student for the ministry. I thought, well, I'll let them make up. They'll probably see I'm no good at it and no church background and turn me down, and that settles the question. I'll let them settle the question. Well, of course, they made a mistake. (laughs) That's how I got into the ministry.
1: In Portholes, there's a, there's, a, there's a lovely fr- uh, paragraph that explains it to me, I think. Although it had been my good fortune to have loving and caring parents, I lack brothers and sisters close to my own age. Now, active membership of two Christian organizations nurtured a hitherto dormant personal need. I've been drifting along as a loner, dutifully meeting the expectations of parents, teachers, peers, but lacking any goal or clear ambition. Presently, I began to see life through new eyes. Not only did loneliness vanish in a warm and supportive group, but the practice of the Christian tradition provided a framework of reference that lent direction and meaning to everything I did.
2: Yes, you see, It wasn't so much any special experience of God, it was the experience of fellowship in a Christian movement um, that that, uh, led me on which I had not experienced before. And we used to go an, annually to a camp at Puna Weir, about 50 or 60 people. And I, 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 you know, got a lot out of these, these camps and a lot out of the, the weekly activities. We used to have study groups and Sunday teas and all that sort of thing. And um, that really, it, it was the fellowship of the church that I really enjoyed, and it really helped me to to live. And, and the Christian life was a was a life within a fellowship. Uh, and um, that is what kept me, brought me to the Christian faith and kept me in the Christian faith. And that's why I, I still go to church today. It's because of the fellowship. Mind you, the church life is very different today from what it was then. but. Uh, because the church I go to has tried to keep up with the times, which unfortunately most churches don't. And uh, so it's the fellowship of the church that is really important.
1: Can we talk about the framework? Yes. Be- because in, in, in my introduction, I used that lovely phrase, the fragments of dismantled Christendom. Yes. So, and, and, and in the, in, at the end of portholes, you use the brilliant analogy of a rowing eight who are going forwards facing backwards. Yes. And you say that perhaps that's the best illustration of what we might have for a future, a post-Christian future, defined by the Christian framework of the past. Yes. And so the framework, even in a world after Christendom, which you talk about all the time, is tremendously important to you, isn't it?
2: Oh yes, you see, while we have moved in the last century into a secular world, it doesn't mean a non-religious world, it means this world, and it has come out of Christendom. The modern secular world didn't come out of India, it didn't come out of China, it came out of Western Christendom. And therefore, in many ways, the, the values which uh, we respond to, mm, honesty, mm, truth, compassion, love. These came out of Christianity, and in many ways, they are for me, God. After all, even the Bible says God is love. Well, God are the values which we feel we've got to respond to, and that is what the secular world has to live by. We must remember our past and how we got here. If we we forget our past, well, we're lost.
1: Hmm. I think, I, I think when, when you said God is love, there's a, in that documentary, that lovely documentary that was made about you uh, a few years ago, you were asked uh, what, what what you believe in and you say the values that i hold dear are a concern for truth and justice and love and compassion these of course are often regarded as being the attributes of god and in that sense they are for me god and that's what you just said then yes so god is what truth compassion love
2: god god are the values you see to be a human being you have to have a certain values Uh, uh, the most people don't think about them but they do have them and if you think about them and feel that you've you've got to learn to be honest being honest isn't always easy and i remember i i've had to i've had to grow to maturity simply in being honest being honest with myself being honest with my fellows but I feel the call to be honest, to be just, to be, to be loving. And it's not always easy to be loving. That's why the, the, the heart of Christianity for me is loving one's enemies. That's very difficult indeed.
1: <laughs> did, did I have a speech bubble above my head? <laughs> <laughs> Yep, I'm working on it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, we have to relearn what it means to live by faith alone. Faith in ourselves, faith in, faith in one another And Tayad de Chardin's words, faith in the world.
2: Yes. Now, in, in, the, in the modern world, faith is for many people has come to mean a set of beliefs. That's not faith, that's not what faith is. In fact, to believe in a set of beliefs is really idolatry. You have idolized your beliefs. Uh, Now, to believe um, has changed its meaning. Um, Believe used to mean, I put my faith in. And back in the 16th century, No one ever said, well, I'll rephrase that. Back in the centuries, in the 16th century, if you had said, I believe in the devil, you would have been shocked. Most people did believe in the devil in the modern sense of the world, but they never would have said, I believe in the devil, because it meant they put their faith in the devil. So faith is an attitude of trust. And God is the symbol of what one puts one's trust in. And uh, for me, of course, one puts one's trust in the values, these values that we speak of. And, and that is why you, you have faith. Now, to get back to Thayer de Chardin, Thayer when he made that comment, was, he, he said, if I were to lose my faith in God, Or in Jesus Christ I would still believe in the world and the reason for that was he saw the world with eyes that most of us don't have he saw it as an evolving process which was going to end up as Omega and Omega was gone now it's not a not an easy vision for us to capture, but that's what he meant was when he said he believed in the world, the process of evolution.
1: The, and the, the miracle of evolution.
2: The miracle of evolution. yes. Evolution is a marvelous concept and reality. We're all caught up in it. Each of us is evolving, the human race is evolving, life is evolving. I came to understand this a better when I wrote my little book on evolution, From the Big Bang to God, and and indeed, that book changed me. Writing a book can actually change your thinking and the way you see reality. And uh, that's, as I came to terms with it, I then realized in the middle of that, um, writing that book, that I was using words. But w- language wasn't there in the beginning. Language is all part of the evolving process. You see, we, we used to think that language was there at the very beginning. God used language to create the world. In the beginning was the words of St. John's Gospel. But no, language is part of a process. The process of evolution reached a the point of human language. And that's when we really began to become humans, uh, really only about perhaps 200,000 years ago, Uh, give or take, you know. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so we are language-speaking animals, and that's what differentiates us from all other animals.
1: at the front of portholes to the past, your dedication to my family and their progeny of all generations to come, ad infinitum. (laughs) Which is a lovely hopeful note, isn't it? Ad infinitum. Yes. But at the end, you're less hopeful. You talk about dark clouds gathering, and a sense this may be the last human century, and our reluctance to even acknowledge some of the terribly big issues that face us, so what hope do you have for uh, your family and their progeny of all generations to come ad infinitum?
2: Well, if I were as hopeful as (laughs) Taida I would hope that evolution carries on in such a way that the human species will reach a point where it realises what's happening, but it doesn't show any signs of it at the moment. And at the moment, we are concerned with global warming. We are concerned with the fact that we are polluting the earth. We are concerned with the fact that we are multiplying multiplying the species out of all capacity to be fed by the earth. And so there's a doomsday coming I hate to think about. Now, just how it will come, I don't know. Will it be the rise of some new disease which will wipe out most, if not all, of the human species? Um, Certainly we can't go on at at the present rate multiplying and when we are doing these things to the planet. Uh, And it's hard to know whether we can actually reach the point of reversing global warming or stopping pollution. I mean, we're doing our bits. We now try to get rid of rubbish in a proper way and reuse and all that sort of thing. And that's good, but does it go far enough? It's hard to say.
1: In your second sermon, you attempted to answer the question, what is God like? That was 1939 oh yes yes no. <laughs> well, and, and 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 i wonder and forgive me for being a little bit cheeky but but were you trying to answer it for yourself because, oh yes because yeah. i have a sneaking suspicion the congregation had an idea I oh just yes didn't.
2: they probably knew better than i did <laughs> but um, no, uh, yes I, looking back mind you i've destroyed that sermon but I, i've kept most of the others and uh, i r- realized that when i join and i uh, um, became caught up with the Christian faith and the Christian community, God was all part of a total package. And I accepted that. But when I became a student for the ministry, I realized that I had to understand the term God rather more than that. So in this sermon, I tried to think through what God is really like. In the end, I came to the general conclusion that we look to Jesus in order to try to understand that. And the values that Jesus pres- uh, prescribed for us to live by are, are in a sense a pointer. Of course nowadays, I, I don't think of God as a being at all, but rather as, as, as I say, as a set of values. And, and God, the word God has a very interesting history. Uh, Karen Armstrong, uh, who was once a nun, has written a very good book on, the, on the, the history of God. And now, with my present background of having read so much, I can see how the, uh, the word God evolved and it didn't really become a singular word until about 500 years before the Christian era. And, and at that point, to put it very simplistically, The gods were displaced by God. They were displaced by a unity, and God is one. Now, what is important about that is not that God is a supernatural being, but there's a oneness about God. That is, it's a unity, and it is that unity which in the Middle Ages gave rise to modern science, as um, um, Roger Bacon, for example, uh, one of the first scientists, a very odd sort of a scientist, but the first, he, he invented the term empirical science because he, he carried out experiments in order to understand what he called the ways of God. So it was that unity which gave him the conviction that there was a unity in the universe and that he could try and discover what that unity was.
1: You know the last time I sat opposite someone speaking like this, other than professionally doing interviews, was when I was at university. And it, you're 99. Now, I must, it, it must be bloody awful that people constantly remind you how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's worth putting on the record, because here you are, quoting Karen Armstrong, here you are reading new books, here you are, excited by ideas, excited by reading, excited by learning. Are you still finding answers? Are you still a work in progress in terms of all these big questions that you've addressed all your life? Wrestling with God, all of that stuff. Are you still getting there?
2: Oh, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I still work away at these questions because I find them so interesting. And I still write. I'm, I'm always working at my computer, which my wife wish I'd get away from sometimes (laughs) and uh, she's she's here here surely she'll agree with that yes and uh, but nevertheless uh, I've got a mind that keeps trying to explore these things well uh, uh, actually I think that's a good thing it helps to keep you keep you
1: going really Yeah, it does Mm. keeps that sparkle in your eyes doesn't it um I want to read you a Jane Goodall quote. Is that all right? Jane Goodall, right. Because it seems to me that you will disagree with this and I want to hear your disagreement. Even though I've interviewed Jane Goodall and she's a remarkable woman and has done extraordinary things. But Jane Goodall says there are only two ways, it seems to me, only two ways, it seems to me, in which we can think about our existence here on earth. We either agree with Macbeth that life is nothing more than a tale told by an idiot, a purposeless emergence of life forms, including the clever, greedy, selfish, and unfortunate species that we call homo sapiens, the evolutionary goof, or we believe, as Pierre Teilhard de Chardin put it, that there is something afoot in the universe, something that looks like gestation and birth, in other words, a plan, a purpose to it all. Now. Jane Goodall says that there are only those two ways of looking at the universe, but I think you believe that there is a third way, right? Somewhere in between that.
2: Yes, I suppose it's a third way because, you see, I agree partially with both of those alternatives. <laughs> Um The universe has no purpose, but we human beings are purposeful and it's partly because of language and um, i mean you can say that all the animals have purpose in this, and the purpose is to live keep on living survival is is the is the is what's kept things going in the in the evolutionary process but i think for human beings now masters of language we see purpose in a rather more sophisticated way, it's not just survival. Of course, that 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 is that is a purpose for us too. We want to keep on living, but we want to see we want to live for a purpose, so that we we want we only find satisfaction in life if we can look back and feel we have made something of it. We have done something worthwhile, and 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 when we celebrate the death of somebody at a funeral. That is the kind of thing we're looking for. I mean, it may be that to become a loving person or maybe to have produced a family of a loving kind. But nevertheless, we, yes, there is a purpose that we ourselves see. But the world itself, the universe, has no purpose. Was there a plan? No, I don't think so. No, as a matter of fact, I've often thought of that because going back as I did to the Big Bang, what was there at the Big Bang? Well, of course, as scientists say, there could have been a Big Bang and it could have collapsed into nothing again. On the other hand, it could have kept on exploding and exploding so that I don't know what would have happened then. It could have been just little bits, you see. But we're in between these two, and according to some scientists, there's a rather narrow band that we have been in. And that is why the evolution of the species, of, of the universe from the Big Bang has gone into, uh, to, tremendous clusters of stars we call galaxies. I mean, there are so many of them. It's just, we can't take it in. The size of the universe is beyond our human capacity to understand. Even our own g- g- galaxy is bigger than we can understand. So that in one sense, yes, there, uh, there is no purpose for it, But um, but we have become creatures who are concerned with purpose, and that is one of the wonders, really, of reality.
1: Although, you worry, don't you, that our secularism, our post-Christendom life and world is rudderless.
2: Yes, it is rudderless, and we're in a, culturally, we, have entered a new period in which we are ceasing to see our national affiliation as the most important thing, and we are becoming global citizens. And and that is going to be a difficult process, just as it was when tribalism once reigned, and then we had nationalism, and we've left those things behind, and, and it's easy for people to feel somehow um, that they're lost. And what, is, what I think is hopeful about the future is, we haven't had an international war for 70 years. Now, the First World War was to be the war that we end all wars, and it wasn't. But the Second World War has proved to be that up to a point because it not only produced the United Nations, which is a relatively weak body compared to what I believe it ought to be, uh, it, it has nevertheless helped nations to come together and do certain things of a constructive nature together. There are various parts of the United Nations who do that. And we have new methods of communication today. I mean, radio and television, uh, uh, well, radio came in in the 1920s, television in the 1960s, and then came the internet, uh, and the internet, and now we are all connected with one another, I mean, I, I converse with my family on the other side of the world by doing uh, words with friends. I uh, so backwards and forwards. Now, that's a, that's a good sign for the future. It's helping us to realize that we all belong together, and that's much more important than, uh, I don't want to make America great at all, as Trump does. I don't <laughs> want to make New Zealand great. I want to be a part of a global community who are working together for the good of all humankind, and which means... <laughs> and, and which means that, uh, that we must have contact with China and India and the Soviet r- uh, Russia.
1: Orden, we must love one uh, another or yes, die. Yes,
2: that's right. That's loving one's enemies. They don't need to be one's enemies. You,
1: you overcome them, make them friends. There's a, there's a wonderful story in here, you, you on the day, the, 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 I think it's the day the war ends, the second atomic bomb has been dropped on Japan and you are at a grocery store in Kurao. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, and, I remember
2: and, that very clearly because uh, I, I went down to this Waitaki Supply Stores and the man behind the counter whom I knew very well, he wasn't a churchman, but I had him leading my boys' brigade at the, at the church. He was simply furious. And when I asked him his why?" he said, how can we human beings do a thing like that? Drop this bomb on, on helpless people, women and children. And I realized that while I was myself rather glad that the war was coming to an end, i realized that it opened up a completely new, frightening future. We live in a nuclear age. And uh, so I, I learned a lot from that rather simple man as he was, he was well read, but he was not an educated man in other respects. Interesting man he was.
1: Anne O'Brien said to me, talk a little bit about Lloyd's life. And, 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 not, and not just about theology, although you are so fascinating on theology and on, and, and, and on who we are and how we might be the best version of ourselves, that I could talk to you infinitely about that, but uh, in both these books, actually particularly in wrestling with God, you write vividly and evocatively of cycling, of, 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 of being on your bike, of being oh. out. Of being out, of being out in the world, did you? So you were going through Otago, you were going, you know, all round through, through central North Otago. Did you just love it? That space, that freedom, that that openness, that infinity.
2: Yes, well, I suppose all that came out in a little book I wrote on my bike, um, which, uh, well, I, en- I enjoyed seeing the country. I, I mean, I was, I was brought up. Well, apart from my four years in Australia, I was brought up mainly in Southland and Otago, and so I didn't know much about the North. Uh, I mean, uh, on one of those trips, I went into the uh, Maori territory, I've forgotten the name of it, uh, and where Te is, and I had never seen Maoris before, and down, we never saw Maoris down in, the, down in Otago. How old
1: were you? Mm. How, how old were you when you saw your first Maori, do you think?
2: Oh, uh, let me see. What? I, would, I suppose about 20, 21, 22.
1: But, 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 but your dad had had an association oh, with Maori yes, people he, and he was very proud of that and unusually yes, he well, used words like kyota and kapai, which would right. have been highly yes, unusual I at that was time. brought
2: up with them in my background that's strangely enough um, Kapai and whatnot um, my father lived in Kaipoi well there was a very strong tribal connection at the Kaipoi Pa you see and he used to play chess with one of the with one of the uh, uh, there, and he, he had great respect for them and their ability. So I had that as the background, but my own experience de- didn't have any of that until I was much later.
1: Can we talk about 1967? Are you bored of talking about 1967? Do you, ask if, do you mind if I ask you about it? Yeah, no, no, oh, fine. Thank you. When, when, when people talk about heresy, that, 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 these days, people get a bit confused about it and they think that, had you been found guilty, there would have been a good hanging out the back. <laughs> <laughs> burnt at <it> the <to> stake. <laughs> yeah, burnt at the stake. And, 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 and in fact, I looked at some footage, there's not much footage available of you at the time, although it was televised, but I've looked at everything I could get my hands on and I have a sneaking suspicion that at some level you were quite relishing the debate. You were actually quite enjoying yourself.
2: Oh, well, I liked a good theological discussion. <laughs> um, and, and if it had stayed at that level, it would have been no problem at all. But um, it, and it, it, in its early days, it was. Of course, when, when the word heresy was first used, I just laughed at the idea. <laughs> Uh, until it became a little more serious, and uh, I felt my two opponents didn't have much sense of humour. For for example, um, at at the uh, so-called trial itself, in my reply, I I said, that if only one of my opponents had brought down his golf clubs uh, and had a game of golf, we would have got on very well, I I thought. But no, that wasn't, didn't go down
1: too well. And uh,
2: so, how did we start on this now about the heavy
1: Yeah, I wondered if at some level. Oh yes. But, but well,
2: it, yes. I. I um, you see, when the it, it all came, it all sort of gradually grew out of the an article I wrote and then a sermon I preached and then a series of articles I wrote to try and explain the sermon I preached and so on. And it gradually developed. And in its early days, I was quite enjoying all all this discussion, And but it reached the point where there was such tension in the church that the, moderator of the General Assembly told me to keep quiet and not to... So, I I later was invited to give an address um, to Canterbury students, and I expected a small group of 20 people, and they'd filled filled Memorial Hall with it. And and I said at the beginning that... um, that no one was to take any notes because this was a private session. I was not allowed to speak in public. Someone actually took notes and that would lead to trouble too. But um, (laughs) um, while we were exploring these ideas, I I was enjoying the whole process. After all, in the end, I said nothing unusual at all. What I said then would seem old hat today because I I was pretty sure of my position, you see. Everything I said had been said by others, it's just that people hadn't kept up with their reading. (laughs) 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 That's what one of my friends said at the
1: time. (laughs) And and that's absolutely true, isn't it? Yes. Hmm. Did you say that? Did I say that? Yeah, 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 to the to, to the two humorless men? Did you, the, t- did you suggest they kept up with their reading?
2: Oh, no, I didn't think of that at the <laughs> time. <laughs> but I, you see, the um, the, the first article uh, should have given them that suggestion because I was quoting a Scottish theologian whom I knew personally, who had been out to New Zealand, and and he wrote a book, which he called secular Christianity because he was talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, in it he said, the Christian is free to say the bones of Jesus may live may, are still in Palestine. And he said, until they, until they feel free to say that, they haven't understood what the resurrection means. And I was simply expounding this. Well, of course it... It led to all sorts of
1: problems. What does the resurrection mean?
2: Oh, oh, that's a long history.
1: I, <laughs> Sorry, I, I wrote a whole book yes, about that. Yes, I know that, you did.
2: In that, um, see, resurrection is a is an I- an idea that really started in nature, because at spring everything comes to life again, and every month the moon dies and comes to life again. So that the idea of resurrection is an idea from nature. Indeed, this was something which later, a theologian um, from the end of the first century from Egypt, he recalled this and said that's where it came from. Uh, But it gradually evolved and then it went to the idea of the resurrection of people, uh, of the race the Jewish race, That's what comes in Ezekiel. And By the second century, it had developed even further. The, by the second century, particularly in the Maccabean uh, Wars, the young Jewish soldiers were being killed in their prime, and how did one square that with a God of justice? Well, that's when the idea of a resurrection to a new life, uh, came about, and they envisaged these uh, young soldiers as in, 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 dressed in white robes and glistening and so on. And all that lay as the background against the death of Jesus so that it wasn't at all surprising that the idea that he had risen from the dead. Now, forget about the empty tomb. That's a later story. What the resurrection of Jesus from the dead meant that he had been raised from the underworld of the dead to be with God in heaven, his Father. And it's reflected, by the way, in St. John's Gospel. Um, In St. John's Gospel, where the women go to the empty tomb, um, they are surprised that the tomb is empty. And then suddenly Jesus is there. And Jesus says, don't touch me, I'm ascending. They had caught him ascending from the underworld to heaven above the overworld. So the idea of resurrection has a very long and interesting history. uh, Only when we get caught up with with a a later legend, the empty tomb, uh, that that it changes.
1: Now we have about eight minutes left and we we, we discuss questions, but uh, Lloyd's hearing isn't great. So what the idea is, is that Lloyd, if people want to come and talk to you and get their book signed and all that kind of stuff, you would be delighted to do that at the oh, desk yeah. afterwards? Yes,
2: that's right, yeah. so,
1: so, So I hope that's all right. Um, I, want to, I want to end, I guess, looking back and forward, and at the end of potholes, sorry, portholes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels like potholes, doesn't it? (laughs) And if there's anyone from Christchurch here, they'll know uh, about that. Uh, At the end of Portholes, it says, I turn now from peering through portholes to the past to surveying the current state of the world. I feel both grateful for the many positive changes that have occurred during my lifetime and privileged to have witnessed their arrival. Nevertheless, I occasionally experience a warm nostalgia for the relative simplicity and security of the world into which I was born, and have lately sensed a widespread and growing apprehension about the future. And elsewhere, I think at the very beginning actually, although that might not be a correct recollection, you say, in 1900, we knew exactly who we were. And what do you feel most nostalgic for?
2: Well, I feel that as you get, as you we felt in those days, the beginning, the world was a safe place, and you were sure of it, um, the, um, and and we were looking forward, particularly through science fiction, to all sorts of wonderful things that we were going to do. The world, was, you know, the universe—it was our oyster. Uh, and, and nothing we could do was going to stop that sort of thing. But as time went on, particularly the first two world wars and, and then uh, all sorts of the other problems we've had, we, we've lost that feeling of safety in the world. And now with terrorism, for example, being spread globally, um, there's a feeling of insecurity that we have today that was not there in the beginning of the, beginning of the 20th
1: century at all. How do we best overcome that
2: oh i don 't know. No. I wish I did um, uh, because terrorism is a very difficult thing to uh, to overcome in the same way as in the early Christian centuries, the Roman Empire found piracy on the Mediterranean was very difficult to <laughs> overcome, but they did in the end but so it is only by uh learning to work together as United Nations um, and not nationally, that we can do it. And there are signs that we are moving in that direction.
1: You say when you're talking about this global world, this post-Christendom global world, we need rituals in which we can express our togetherness. And that's a lovely idea. And I thought, what are they? What are those rituals? Yes,
2: we haven't got them really. The one that New Zealand and Australia have is Anzac Day, and that's growing in importance. Do you have noticed that more recently? More people, people young people are going. And, and that's a good thing. That's a national festival, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it really uh, nurtures the need to preserve peace and grow peace. That's a good thing. Um, I think we've got to return to some uh, festivals of nature. I I think it would be a good thing to celebrate the shortest day of the world, the shortest day in the year, for example, as a turning point. And uh, uh, there are other things there are other uh, times in nature. You see, a spring festival would be very good to celebrate the new birth and growth of, of vegetation. Um, and I, <clears throat> one of the um, festivals that has become quite widespread and important is simply Mother's Day. When we, you know, we turn our attention to, our, to, to the person we depend most upon in our early years. Um, Father's Day is quite insignificant by <laughs> comparison. <like>, in <laughs> <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so, I, uh, now festivals can sometimes start from quite small beginnings, but if they catch the imagination of people, they can grow. And so, I, uh, no one personally can invent them. They have to emerge, as it were, out of almost nothing as, as, as they meet the needs for such a, such a, uh, an, a, a, such a kind of, um, what did I, yes, um, <clears throat> some celebration. Togetherness. Togetherness, yes.
1: You are having a wonderful life, aren't you?
2: Well... Yes, as I look back I mean it has been I've, <clears throat> I feel i've been very blessed in life, as you say i 've had my problem problems <clears throat> and uh, i but, but but nevertheless i I feel that i've been very blessed and much more so than so many others I can think of. Of course, one thing is you 've got to turn tragedy into something more hopeful, and I've learned to do that. I've, I, I've lost uh, two wives, it, uh, le, that left me sort of very downcast, but uh, <clears throat> tell me, I was, did um, I tell you about?
1: The... You, you told me, but you didn't tell these people. It's oh, okay. a lovely <laughs> story. It's oh, a well... <laughs> lovely story. <laughs>
2: um, my wife, Shirley, is here, um, was with me watching television one night, and And uh, Sir Edward, uh, um, Sir Hillary, was on being interviewed, one of his last interviews I think on television, and they were talking about his life, and he said, well, I've had two wonderful wives. I turned to Shirley and said, I've had three wonderful (laughs) wives. I can, (laughs) he said you can't do better than that, and I
1: have. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, that, that's time's up. Our time is up. Our book signing and, 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 and general chatter and conversation afterwards. Uh, Martha Girlhorn, who was a journalist I admire, Lloyd, uh, when, when she was asked about her journalism, and I'm not going to give you the whole quote, but she said, "My responsibility was the effort," and, and, and I think that's an adage to live by. Yes, it is. And, and, and you have made the effort constantly. And, and the effort, often people make the effort and they want to hoard it. They want to put it in the bank or they want to keep it from others or they want to spend it on a flash car. Your effort has resulted in a, a generosity and a contribution to our life that I don't think we can overstate. It has been, you are a a beautiful New Zealander, and your contribution to New Zealand life and New Zealand consciousness is an act of profound generosity and and a great effort. And I'm sure everyone feels that we have seen the evidence of that today, where your acuity, your interest, your passion, your enthusiasm remains at 99 shining. So thank you, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Lloyd Gehren.
0: Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.